Thank you, Sal. Good morning, folks. Uh, my name is Tim. If you're new or visiting today, it's lovely to have you along. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you are new, you've come at a really um, cool day because we're kicking off our series in the book of Isaiah. Let me just get set up here a little bit. <coughs> um, <coughs> how about we pray as we start? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the way that you have used Isaiah the way that you've used him in history to reveal your plans and your purposes, not just for the people then, but indeed even for us now. And so we do ask, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive to your word today, that you would help us to understand and apply it both for our good and for your glory. Amen. Now, as I said, we're starting a, uh, a series on the book of Isaiah today. Um, if you're unaware, just in case you're unaware, Isaiah is one of the uh, three major prophets of the Old Testament. Now, I don't say that he's a major prophet because uh, the other prophets are lightweights by comparison. That's not quite what it's about. It's simply because of the sheer length of Isaiah's ministry and the amount of work that he produced. So along with the other major prophets, Ezekiel's 48 chapters, Jeremiah's 52 chapters, and Isaiah's 66 chapters, these make up some of the longest books in the whole Bible. And at 66 chapters long, I'm not sure if you've had a bit of a, a, bit of a gander through it, Isaiah can feel like a bit of a monster when you open it up at first. It can feel a bit like an imposing mountain when you're standing at the bottom at the beginning of chapter 1 and looking up to the top, the end of the, of the book. And in fact, I, I would suggest that if you were to compare the Old Testament with the Himalayan mountain ranges, I would argue that Isaiah is the Everest. Again, I don't say this just because of its sheer length, but because of its content. Because what we'll uncover as we trek up this Mount Isaiah is that amongst the, the dark valleys and the, and the perilous precipices at times, we'll actually come to see the most spectacular vistas and the most vast panoramas, the most thorough Old Testament treatment, understanding and explanation of God's universal plan revealed through the nation of Israel and the events that happened in and around that nation in this time. I want to argue that it really is, Isaiah really is a full-on Old Testament exposition foreshadowing of the gospel, which comes into, well, let's be honest, comes into light and in gleaming clarity when we get to the person and work of Jesus. And it's precisely because of this fact that we at church here at WEC, we, we teach monsters like Isaiah. It's precisely why as a church, we're committed to teaching through long, often difficult books of the Bible that seem obscure, that seem a little daunting, that really are seemingly so removed from our present historical context that they just seem to be of no use or value. They're a bit of a head scratcher. And we do this because we are biblically convinced and therefore I want to say rightly convinced that in the intentions of a sovereign, good, wise, powerful, all-loving God who was superintending the events of these times and was inspiring Isaiah to write these words, it's in the intentions of this sovereign, good and wise and powerful God that these book and these words about these events and these people, they're in Important. In fact, I want to say extremely important and instructive for us too. You know, the themes that Isaiah writes about through the course of his 66 chapters, especially we'll see on the subjects of God and humanity and the concepts of sin and redemption, those in particular, four crackers, really big topics. As Isaiah talks about these then, they are of extraordinary import for us even now. 
They carry weight not just for the time that they were written in and not just in the present. In fact, I want to go further and say that they actually carry weight for eternity. It's that significant. It's that big a deal. So I want to sort of start off by saying, don't feel bad if you're a little intimidated standing at the bottom, looking up at the top of Mount Isaiah. It's okay if you're feeling a little overwhelmed at present, not sure of how you could possibly make it to the top. Because like all good mountain treks, well, they all start with a committed bunch of people and begin with a single step. So let's, let's crack on, eh? My plan today is really to help us set up our trek over the next few weeks, probably actually months, of our way up Isaiah. And uh, let's see where we get to. I want to get us a basic feel for the, uh, the shape and the structure of the message of Isaiah, the lay of the land, as you will, the, the terrain. And we're going to do that firstly by looking a little bit at the historical context of what is happening on the world stage when Isaiah is writing. By the way, if you haven't um, got one, there are outlines at the back that have got some notes that sort of help you take some ideas down as we go along. I think it's important. It's pretty dense. It's pretty thick. But we look at the the historical context. What is happening on the world stage when Isaiah was writing? Actually, can I say it just as a quick aside as well? It's this feature of Christianity and the Bible in particular that really just outshines other religious texts. Can I just say that? It's actually, the Bible is written in real historical times about real historical places and people and event, many of which are verifiable through archaeological investigation and the like. And, And therefore, because it's so historically savvy, it's actually open to critique. And that's good. That's actually helpful because it keeps standing up. It's just fantastic. So, look, we'll, we'll look a little bit at the historical context. That's the first thing we'll do. Secondly, we'll also look at some of the modern objections to the authorship of Isaiah. This is important to do at the beginning because it's something that often causes people to sort of bobble at the beginning and I think maybe takes them up a different trail that leads up a lesser mountain, if I can use that analogy. And finally, we'll do this by dipping our toe into chapter 1 where we will get a feel for some of the major themes of Isaiah's book as a whole. Because actually what I want to uh, help you see is that Isaiah 1 really is like a microcosm, if you like, of of the book of Isaiah uh, in itself. It's a small-scale model of what Isaiah treats and explains in greater detail and richer clarity through the other 65 chapters. But we'll get there in turn. First things first, the historical context. Have a look with me, please. If you haven't got a Bible, grab one at the back, put your name in it, it's yours. The opening verse actually gives us the historical time frame of Isaiah's writing. Read it there with me. Isaiah 1.1 says this, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now that's a really helpful verse. It's a very helpful thing to see, but it assumes some knowledge, doesn't it? For example, you need to know who and when Kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah reigned to be able to place this in history. Helpfully, this is something that we can find out. This is verifiable. And rather than sort of give you an extensive history of the the nation of Israel up until this point, I just want to make a couple of quick statements about Israel's history and then point you in a direction for you to fill it out for yourself. In fact, you'll notice in your outline today, I have put in a little slip. Where'd mine go? I've put in a little slip here 
This is a really helpful, it's two pages, it's double-sided. Have a look at this. A chap named Mark Barry, um, he actually has a website full of diagrams and visual aids to help people really get a grip on a lot of the stuff in the Bible. In fact, it's called uh, Visual Unit Me. I think I've got the, the, um, the website there, Kel, if you want to just quickly jot that down. Visualunit.me, check it out. He's got some awesome stuff. I've put this in here in your, um, in fact, I have these two slips stuck in my Bible in the beginning and they are very well worn i go here all the time to try to help me understand you can see they've got some little there's a score of a gin rummy game i think even on that one but what i'm getting at is it's super helpful i use it all the time stick them in the front of your bible it'll help you out no end as you read and try to get a grasp of what's going on at times um have a look at them there but i'm gonna i'm gonna refer to a couple of these today but a couple of key facts you need to know up front the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms after the King Solomon died in 922 BC. You can read about that in 1 Kings 12 if you're interested. You can see it there on the diagram as it's represented that fork in the line. There's a line going straight down and then she forks off. That's King Solomon dies, Jeroboam, Rehoboam set up rival kingdoms. and In fact, they split into two kingdoms. One was known as Judah, that's the left line, made up of two tribes in the south. And the kingdom of Israel, which is annoying because it was all Israel, now it's the northern kingdoms. Anyways, Israel made up of ten tribes in the north. And each of these kingdoms had separate kings and operated as kind of separate independent sort of nations for the most part. Now what's important to see is that Isaiah's prophecy starts at the time of King Uzziah's death. He's also called Azariah, you'll, say on, you'll see on the, um, on the king's sheet. He starts at the time of his death in 740 BC and continues into the reign of King Hezekiah, who came to the throne about 715 BC, which means that Isaiah is prophesying for at least 25 years, possibly up to 50 years. But even more important than that is to realize that when Isaiah is preaching, he's prophesying to the southern kingdoms, to Judah. And he begins at a time when the northern kingdom was still around at first. You see, what happens as Isaiah is preaching in the south, there's problems on the world stage, there's this Assyrian crisis, and in the course of Isaiah's prophetic ministry in the south, Israel in the north gets overrun by the Assyrian nation in 722 BC. Now this is uber significant, because although the two nations of Israel have sort of set them up as opposition, they're still in a sense, well they still share the common ancestry with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and therefore they have a common interest and a common claim in the covenant promises made by the God of Israel, singular. That's Yahweh. And so it becomes the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. This becomes a major plank in Isaiah's prophetic warnings to Judah and to Judea and to Jerusalem. Essentially, Isaiah will point to that example of Israel and the north and declare, guys, don't miss that. Yahweh has punished them for rebelling and ignoring him. Don't go the same way. That's essentially what he keeps pointing at. And all through Isaiah's time, this crisis of Assyria as a dominant, ambitious and aggressive world superpower, it continues to threaten the southern tribes of Judah. We'll hear about that in a couple of chapters time, down the middle. And even though Isaiah is not around to witness the eventual destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, though he's not around to witness the exile of the people of Judea, 
of Jerusalem to the now new superpower of Babylon, 597, 586 BC. There's two deportations. Even though he's not around to witness that personally, he writes about it in his prophecies. More than that, he doesn't just write about the fall of, Je- uh, of Jerusalem in his prophecies. He even writes about the restoration too. Now get this. That's uh, something that happens 200 years into the future when Isaiah is writing. It's something that is happening way outside Isaiah's own lifetime. In fact, he even mentions a Persian king by the name of Cyrus 200 years before that guy's born. Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1. Now that causes some concern with among people, doesn't it? This causes people to raise some questions about the authorship of Isaiah because people rightly recognise not only a, a thematic and a stylistic difference between there's two chunks in Isaiah often they say 1 to 39 sort of operates as a unit, a unit about judgment. 40 to 66 seems to be stylistically more about, or thematically rather, more about hope. And actually they even break it down a little bit further if you're really keen between 44, 40 and 55 and 55 and 66. But this causes people to have some bobbles. It causes people to be perplexed by the precise historical accuracy of Isaiah's prophetic utterances that really could not have been fully understood either by the man himself or the people he spoke to in the time that he spoke them. And because of this, people conclude that Isaiah, it's not a single unit. More likely, it's the writing of two, maybe even three, Isaiahs. The original Isaiah in uh, 1 to 39, and one of two people following in his footsteps, much later down the track, writing the rest, verses, uh, chapters 40 to 66. Now, don't get me wrong, I understand the question, it's, and it's a, it's a, I understand the concern, you ought to. It's a good question to ask. It's right to notice some of these features and investigate them. Can I also point out, though, that this has only been a modern-day concern? It, like, really, this concern has only come up in the last sort of 200 years, oh, I probably want to say since the Enlightenment period. And I, th- I think it's become a concern because this idea of prophetic writing offends the modern sensibilities that deny the miraculous by definition. See, modern sensibilities that find it unreasonable to accept that Isaiah could speak with such clarity and precision, precision rather, about the future, speaking ideas and details that he himself could not have fully understood, whoops, much less the people he was speaking to. And so the modern mind has tried to sort of find a way to reconcile this without having to accept the enormity of the wisdom and the power of God who knows the past, the present and the future and can make those details known as he wills, through whoever he wills, at whatever time he wills. Can I just say here, folks, though, it's not only not necessary to try to deny the unity and the singularity of the authorship of Isaiah, it actually cuts against the grain of the message itself. It actually undermines the significance and the point of what Isaiah wrote and why. Because one of Isaiah's major points about God that is consistent throughout his writing is that God is the God who knows and reveals the future. This is the reason why Judah should trust him then. It's still the reason why we should trust him now. It was the generosity of God to reveal the future events to the nation of Judah through Isaiah so that they would not continue in rebellion, but would instead turn and wholly trust in him. That's the point. 
A couple, of a couple of examples from the text that make this uber clear, I think. Jot these down, check them out later. These are examples of Isaiah making future prophecies in that first section, chapters 1 to 39, that everyone agrees was the original Isaiah, Isaiah 1. What we see in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 8, verses 4 and 8, is this OI, original Isaiah, prophesying the future downfall of the north by Assyria specifically and then in chapter 13 and 14 this same seen this same section the future rise and fall of babylon and persia and the eventual return of isaiah from cap from a captivity from an exile this is the same isaiah now the, i point this out because it is not just intellectually inconsistent it's also unreasonable to accept those as the God-inspired prophecies of the real Isaiah, the first Isaiah, but then deny similar prophecies in the back half in preference of another author, or at least one or two other authors. Though there is no historical evidence to suggest that there ever was, there was never any historical evidence to suggest that anyone thought of that ever any point in the last, until the last couple of hundred years. But what's more than that, another clear reason to accept the single authorship of Isaiah and therefore to embrace the, sing the significance of the awesomeness of God in this text is the fact that Isaiah is quoted regularly in the New Testament. In fact, over 400 times Isaiah is quoted from in the New Testament from all chapters, from 1 through to 66. But most significantly, significantly I want you to see is that when Isaiah is quoted by the gospel writers, they often attribute the quote directly to the man Isaiah himself. They don't just reference what he said. Sometimes they do. They say, as it is written elsewhere, yada, 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 yada. And they quote. But often they quote him and reference the man himself. Just look at a couple of examples from Matthew's gospel. They'll come up on the screen. I'm not going to read them all out. Again, you can jot them down if you're keen to follow them up. It would be a good idea. But let me just point out a couple of significant ones so you get the gist of what I'm talking about here. Those couple of ones there, uh, Matthew 13 and Matthew 15. This is Jesus himself attributing Isaiah references to the man, the prophet Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 6, 9 in Matthew 13 and 14 and says, this is Isaiah. In fact, when he does it in Matthew 15, he does the same thing. In fact, he says, I'll put this one on the screen for you. You hypocrite, says Jesus. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. Here, Jesus himself attributes Isaiah to the man, Isaiah. John does the same thing when he quotes from both ends of the book of Isaiah. He quotes at one point in John 12, 38 and 39, he actually quotes 53, Isaiah 53, 10 and Isaiah 6, 10 in successive verses, back to back. Isaiah was right, he says. This is what Isaiah said about you, quoting both half of the books. Now, those things alone ought actually seal the deal. If it was good enough for Jesus to accept that Isaiah really wrote this stuff personally, it's good enough for me. I want to say it ought to be good enough for you. And they're just a few pieces of the evidence. I could go on and I could wax lyrical on this sort of stuff for a while. There's plenty more, but I want you to see how important it is and how actually reasonable it is to understand the book of Isaiah as the God-inspired, Holy Spirit-assisted writing of the one man at the one time period in history and yet it foresees, it illuminates, and it explains historical events far beyond his lifetime. And that's the point. 
I mean, after all, what we'll see when we come to the very back end of Isaiah is some of the most profound and illuminating prophetic expectations of the Messiah fulfilled perfectly in the man Jesus, so much so that it just blows your mind. And you ought, when you read it, just quite instinctively want to praise God as you see and hear Isaiah describe Jesus and what he does and what, he ha- what happened to him and why to an absolute T 700 years before the event. We'll get there eventually. Right. right. Let me get back on track here a little bit. We've, we've established a bit of the historical context. We've got the Assyrian crisis on the world stage, the world superpower trying to knock off all the nations. They eventually roll the north. The southern tribes are in strife. We've dealt with the issue of authorship and the reasons for understanding and reading Isaiah as a single piece. But it's time now to dip our toe into the water of Isaiah 1, into the themes and the message of Isaiah as a whole. And to do this, I'm going to switch up my metaphor a little bit. I'm going to, through the miracle and magic of words alone, and a single prop, transform you from a trek up a monster mountain, wait for this, to a courtroom scene. Sorry, it's a meat tenderizer, but you get the idea. I bet you feel warm already. It was cold up that mountain. Now we're in a nice, you know, oak-lined room. It's a courtroom scene. And what we read and what we hear in Isaiah 1, it reads very much like a courtroom proceedings. Have it open in front of you. The defendant is the nation of Judah, the southern tribes, in particular at this point. The prosecutor, it's God himself. And in verse 2, he calls his first witness. Read it with me in verse 2. He says this, he says, Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for Yahweh the Lord has spoken. Now straight away, actually, I'm going to stop there. Before you even get a chance to read the charge sheet, I want you to notice how significant God's witnesses are. The idea here that he calls heaven and earth as witnesses, it's not a new idea. It's happened before. In fact, it happens to demonstrate the extent of Yahweh's jurisdiction. In other words, all of creation is his. All of creation bears witness to him and for him. You may remember earlier in Israel's history when Moses called heaven and earth as witnesses also. Just in case you've forgotten, let me remind you. Deuteronomy 30. This one will come up on the screen so you don't have to find it. You don't have to do the flicking if you don't like to. This is what Moses says as he's he's, uh, addressing the Israelites even before they cross over the Jordan into the promised land. He says this to them. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15. He says, See... I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I could declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
before even entering into the promised land, the land that is now occupied by these two separate kingdoms of Israel and Judah, Moses calls creation as a witness to their promises to be faithful to Yahweh. He puts before them in absolute, explicit, black and white, can't get around it terms, choose life and prosperity through obedience rather than death and adversity through, well, idolatry and rebellion. Lest they find themselves kicked out of that same land the same way the Canaanites have been spat out of it. Flash forward a few hundred years. This is exactly what we're hearing. Yahweh is called his first witness. And who is it? It's heaven and earth. And the charges? Well, what are the charges? Keep reading with me. Isaiah 1. Sorry, Isaiah 2 to 4. Here's a couple of charges. What exactly is it that they've done? Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared up children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, uh, sorry, its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Can you see the similarities with Deuteronomy 30? It's exactly what Moses warned them against explicitly before they even crossed the river into the land. And yet here we see them. Rebellion, verse 2. They've abandoned Yahweh, verse 4. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. And it's not just the rebellion against an arbitrary rule or rejection of a, a horrible taskmaster. That's not what's going on here. This is children despising their father. This is creation having the audacity of spurning the creator. You can hear the significance, and I won't even want to say the hurt in God's words in the second half of verse 2. He says, I reared up children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. I mean, this is madness. This is rebellion of a whole other order. Israel as a nation are not operating with the sense, the common sense, that God gave a mule. I mean, even a dumb ox knows his owner. Even a donkey understands his dependence on his master for food. But Israel, though entirely dependent on God and though they've pledged themselves to a covenant faithfulness, in which, mind you, God provides all the benefits... Despite this, Israel, Judah, they've rejected her God? That's madness. That is horrific. That is classic cutting off your nose despite your face sort of stuff. And even creation can testify to the high-handed nature of this sinful stupidity. But that's not the only charge. This rap sheet is longer. I mean, it, it stems from the rejection of Yahweh, absolutely, but what's the net effect? It gets worse still. In fact, look at it there in verses 11 to 15. We read, not only have they rejected and abandoned Yahweh and their covenant promises to faithfulness, but they want to pretend that it's all sweetness and light between them and God. Did you notice this as it was read out? Did you hear the kind of religious hypocrisy, the kind of fake, shallow, false worship of God they're bunging on? Have a look at it there, 11 to 14. God speaking again, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have had more than enough of your burnt offerings. 
of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. Worthless festivals. Iniquity with a a feast is, is what some translations go for. Do you hear this? The problem of Judah is that they're excellent at the outward show of allegiance. They make all the sacrifices, they burn all the incense, they celebrate all the cultic religious festivals, but it's all a sham. It's all a thin facade laid over what's really going on behind the scene. As a nation, they're cheats, they're liars, they care nothing for justice, only to further their own selfish gain and desire, and they'll do that however they want. In fact, read it there in verses 16 and 17. You can see that this is the problem. Wash you and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, says God. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Furthermore, in in verse 22, your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and partners with thieves. They all love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Do you see the problem with this, folks? Do you realize the extent of Israel's guilt in rebellion? Do you recognize it in yourself? See, friends, it's, it's, it's easy for us to sit here nearly 3,000 years later and recognize with clarity all the faults of the nation of Israel and the nations of Judah to shake our heads and wag our fingers and <laughs> at all the right places about how sinful and stupid they were. But the, pr- the truth of the matter is, folks, it's not just Judah's issue, it's our issue too. And though, don't get me wrong, in the immediate historical context, Isaiah is absolutely calling out Judah. But if you're honest with yourself... You're guilty of the same charges, aren't you? I am. Ignorance and rebellion against God? Yeah. Self-seeking? Yeah. Injustice? Yeah. Religious hypocrisy? Iniquity with a festival? Tick, tick. And this ought not surprise you because we share our creatureliness with Judah. We are likewise part of God's creation and like the rest, we regularly forget or deny a dependence on the Creator for all things. For light, for warmth, for rain, for food. Think about this. Even the next breath that you take, you don't take that by some divine right. They're not yours by feet of your own decision. They're yours by divine favor. You see, Yahweh's assessment of Judah as a nation is not different to us. And the extent of their problem is just as severe with us. In fact, look at how God describes this in verse 5. Speaking of Judah, I think speaking of us as well, he says, Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. 
That is a grisly figure of speech, isn't it? And of course, it is a figure of speech. It is a word picture of the spiritual condition that we share with Judah. In doctrinal terms, we call this total depravity. What it means is that every inch and every aspect of our humanity has been affected and marred by sin. We are image bearers, but like a busted mirror, we don't reflect with clarity what we ought. Don't get me wrong, we could be worse. I could be worse, believe it or not, I could be worse. If we were as bad as we could be all the time, we'd be utterly depraved. But as it is, we're totally depraved, soul sick from head to foot. And though we have no excuse, we also have no solution either. Like Israel, like Judah, we're all guilty as charged. Just as an aside again, I like asides. If you think this isn't your problem, if you feel I've mischaracterized you here, that sin and rejection of God, that isn't your issue, you're all right, Jack. Then can I just challenge you? We, I talked about this with the guys from Judah seriously the other week. Just for, this, just for one week, just this week, live completely consistently with God as your king. In everything you do, think and say, honor him as he deserves. In fact, I'll even make it easier for you. Just walk north according to your own moral compass. Just walk north, not putting a figurative footstep, either left or right, from your own version of perfection, and then let me know how you got on next Sunday. And as a spoiler alert, if you come and tell me that you've lived a perfect week, I'll call you a liar. That will be at least your second error for the week. We know that's the truth, folks. I can't even live consistently with my own version of perfection, much less God's. My conscience confirms this, and so does yours. It's precisely what keeps us up sometimes at night, but probably doesn't keep us off, up as often as it ought. Because God is right. We are all soul-sick, head-to-toe, totally depraved, not only unable, but just as often unwilling to change. And that's the devastating truth of humanity. And if that's the charge of which we, along with Judah, are guilty, what's the penalty? Well, we heard it already in Deuteronomy 30, didn't we? It wasn't blessing, it was curse. It was not prosperity now, it's adversity, it's not life, it's death. And God says as much in Isaiah 1 as he compares the deserving fate of Judah to that of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that he literally, utterly destroyed by fire in judgment in Genesis 19. Raised them to the ground. Did you notice that reference as we went through? That's what ought happen to Judah. That's what God would be justifiable to doing to us. And yet it's not the sentence that God passes. It's not the sentence that God passes on Judah. Amazingly, even in Isaiah 1, even as God is marshalling and mounting the damning evidence against Judah and it's sky high, God does not bring the gavel down or the meat tenderizer, does not bring it down quickly and swiftly in judgment. Instead, even here, God speaks a message of hope and promise through Isaiah to his wayward, wanted, and rebellious children. Read it with me in verse 18. And please, listen in if you've already recognized yourself as a guilty sinner along with Judah. Listen to what God says there in verse 18. Come now, he says. Let us settle the matter, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, 
they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Do you hear that? Even at the moment of the mountain of evidence against Judah, against us, God, the prosecutor and the judge, now becomes the defense attorney and the advocate. The one who has the right to crash down his divine gavel and pass judgment on us pauses before passing that sentence and offers a different possibility. But how can that happen? How can sin as red as scarlet be made as white as snow? Well, that power's not in Judah. That's not in their control, nor is it in yours or mine, but it is in the control of our sovereign, good, wise and powerful God of creation. And he will do it, but only as light coming out of darkness. Look at it there in verse 24. Therefore, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. Do you hear that? Zion is that sort of name of the heavenly city, Israel in its heavenly sense. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. Judah's hope, our hope, is not in what we can do, but in what God will do on our behalf. The purging of impurities, the removal of sin. That will be God's work in us and for us. And therefore the hope of being found part of the righteous, the faithful city, it's back on the agenda. But it's not through our doing, it's through God's. And what's more, he will do it with justice. In other words, not one instant of human sinfulness will be overlooked. Not one instance of human sinfulness will be swept under the cosmic carpet as if God just goes, oh, that doesn't matter. You get a pass on that one, don't worry about it. No. God will deal with it all fully, finally, justly, and yet still be merciful to his people. How will he do that? How can God pull that off? Well, friends, welcome to base camp. We've just arrived at the bottom of the mountain. These are the questions explored by Isaiah through the nation of Israel and the events that surround that time period in history. From here, we are going to spend the next few weeks, this term, trekking up Mount Isaiah answering those questions, filling out the enormity of God's character, the magnificence of his mercy and the perfection of his plan as we trek up Mount Isaiah. Friends, I hope, I genuinely hope you're as excited as I am. I'm already itching to get to next week. I hope you are too. We're going to stop now and we're going to pray that God would actually help us as we ascend. Let's do that.